The third session of the Mini Cooling Summit recently held in Melbourne as part of the National Sustainability Living Festival was entitled Reclaiming the Climate Emergency Locally. Welcome to this new episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Join me now as we listen to the audio from the third session, Reclaiming a Climate Emergency Locally. Thank you so much for joining us today uh, and thank you for sticking with us for this last part of the mini summit. My name is Sally McAdams and I'm the coordinator of Climate Emergency Australia. Over the next hour, we're going to be talking about reclaiming the climate emergency. Before we get into that, though, I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm joining from the lands of the Wurundjeri people today. And um, whether you're joining from Melbourne or Victoria or around Australia, we're all joining from unceded Aboriginal land. And I'd like to thank the elders of all those First Nations for looking after this country for such a long time. So today we're going to unpack what council mobilisation could look like and how to get your council into climate emergency mode. And this forum is a little bit of a precursor to the climate emergency conference coming up in the middle of the year. We have a council-focused conference coming in April and a community-focused conference coming in June. And uh, the theme of those conferences is also reclaiming the climate emergency. And you can find out more about those at our website. Just in case you haven't come across uh, Climate Emergency Australia before, um, we are a network of councils around Australia who have declared a climate emergency. And our role is to build the capacity of the local government sector to respond to the climate emergency and to act as a collective voice for all of those declared councils. And we're gonna be joined today by five speakers who are all experts in climate emergency mobilization, particularly at the local government level. And I'll introduce each one as we go. But first, just to give you a very brief bit of background context. So as has been mentioned many times today, um, it was back in the end of 2016 that uh, Darabin City Council moved the very first um, climate emergency declaration in the world. And since then, we've had more than 2,000 jurisdictions around the world declare, and that's nations, subnational governments and municipalities. And if you'd like to check the full list and, and the breakdown, do go and check out the Sedania website that's on screen now. That's um, definitely the best place to find all the up-to-date information. And so in Australia, we've had uh, 115 councils declare, as well as the South Australian Government and the ACT. Of those 115 councils, 40 of those have joined Climate Emergency Australia. And if you want to check out uh, to see whether your council is a member or has declared, you can check the Sedania website and check the Climate Emergency Australia website. I guess just to talk a little bit about these last seven years or so, it's been a really exciting time to be working in climate in local government. Um, we've had a lot of hope that local government would sort of provide the blueprint for state and federal government to go into climate emergency mode and fully mobilise our whole society. And there's absolutely no doubt that all of these declarations around the world and here in Australia have accelerated action on global warming at the local government level. However, to date, as far as we know, there's been no council who's really cracked the nut of going into full climate emergency mode. 
And that's one of the reasons that we're here today. And that's one of the reasons for being of Climate Emergency Australia. We want to help councils to do that. So the question we're asking today is what could full mobilisation really look like? How can it help us rescue the climate and save the world? So no pressure on our speakers. But without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Adrian Whitehead. He's one of the directors at CASE, that's Council and Community Action in the Climate Emergency. And Adrian's going to tell us a little bit about the goals of CASE in terms of full emergency mobilisation across all of society to reverse global warming and about the vital role that councils can play in that mobilisation and how councils can step into that leadership role from wherever they are at the moment. So I'll hand over now to you, Adrian. Thanks, Sally. It's uh, great to be here. So as you'd all know, and if you've been fortunate enough to get to the previous speakers, that um, we're looking at uh, a really serious situation now. We're in a climate catastrophe. We're sort of heading into a climate collapse. And uh, unless we get our emissions down below that zero line, where things are going to get worse. And we saw in earlier talks today that we're not looking at doing that for a very, very long time. So we can expect um, if we don't act quite soon that the things that we're seeing now are just going to get worse and worse and get to a really critical stage. So we don't want to go there. So how are we going to not go there? That's really the question. The challenge for us is that we've got a whole lot of politicians that are currently heavily influenced by the fossil fuel industries one way or another. Even in Victoria, um, we've we've been expanding our offshore gas when we should be reducing our emissions and nationally we certainly got some issues around uh federal parliament um on on both sides of politics with significant gas and coal expansions going on so how can we crack this what's what's the theory of change what's going to be the conduit to get our state and federal governments into emergency mode and one really exciting opportunity is one that we've used before, and we've talked about it earlier um, through Sally was talking about it with the climate emergency campaigns, is our local councils. And so this is a bunch of local councillors. It happens to be the very local councillors who declared they were the first government in the world to declare a climate emergency. Okay, so from that, the, this bunch of people here, we started a global movement. We changed global discourse. And um, we've actually created a, a, a movement, despite it being started, from literally a handful of grassroots activists in a single council. And just saying that, it, it did say in my um, introduction, it says there on my name, that I do work for a council, but obviously in this particular presentation, in no way am I representing the council I work for because that's just not allowed. <laughs> so, and you can see here we've got this situation where that emergency declaration has spread around the world um, and had changed global discourse effectively. So can we repeat that? Can we repeat that in terms of getting action at a government level uh, that will start that process of reversing global warming? And I think we can. So we know we need all our governments to get into an emergency mode. We need to do it now. Can a council initiate an emergency response? That's one of the questions that we get often asked. And the simple answer is yes. And we know this for a couple of reasons. Mainly we know it because we had COVID. Every single council around Australia, to some degree, went in emergency mode. They changed the front page of their website. They moved staff from one job to another. They closed public-facing offices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In this particular case at Darabin, they've just announced um, 
10 million dollars package um you know to to fund and stimulate economic growth within that just one little council so we did it for covid um a lot of the examples we could get councils to do are simple covid examples and we can do it again if one council somewhere went into in somewhere in the world went into full emergency mode the rest would start to follow and we would like a set of dominoes just like we succeeded in doing with the climate emergency declaration campaign we got our first council we got our second council we got a third council we convinced the american campaigners to do it and then it took off over the around the world so on our case website it's uh we pretty much got all you need to know so we've got everything from how to build a community campaign and what the emergency mobilization looks like. So I'm just going to dive into that particularly the bit around what the emergency mobilization looks like because other speakers who are coming after me are going to be presenting on um, how to get some of that mobilization that community work and how to work with councillors and that sort of thing. So let's have a look at what emergency mobilization might look like. One of the first things you've got to go is what are you trying to set up to get emergency mobilization to start and I've got these five key things that you'll need. You'll need to get a majority of your councillors uh, on site with an emergency mobilisation so at um, uh, emergency speed. You'll need to get the CEO on site. The CEOs run councillors. Councils are like an executive board or a board of a company. They only do the strategic planning. They've got some specific roles that they have to do, but the bottom line is the CEO runs the business effectively. You're going to have to have a council with the climate and communication teams on board because they're going to be critical to rolling out both your messaging around the climate emergency and the actions that you're doing to mitigate and become resilient to it. You're going to have to have a council with functioning systems. So some councils just for whatever reason, you know, maybe their website team doesn't work or it just takes too long to make a decision. So you're going to have to work with a council that's got that. And none of that's going to happen unless you've got a strong community campaign, all right? So what does emergency mobilisation look like? Um, it starts with the acknowledgement of the climate emergency. You'd then look inwards and you'd build an internal knowledge base amongst the staff and the executive. The executive, as well as the CEO, would need to get buy-in. You need to get buy-in. You develop a new climate emergency plan that reflected emergency mobilisation rather than just a sort of uh, better than business as usual climate response that we would have now, it would have to be a communications priority because this is what councils do worst. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, and community mobilisation, um, community mobilisation is once the council's in this mode, they're encouraging their community to mobilise themselves. You do a whole of council review and you can do an emergency budgeting exercise. Councils do exercise where they put their budgets back to zero and every line item and every staff member um, needs to, to, you know, justify their position. And we would do something similar but with an emergency frame. You make it the number one priority and then you go about helping the council, helping everyone get to negative. Once you go down that road, there's amazing things you can do. You can work in all sorts of areas, and um, some of the later speakers will talk a little bit more about this. But, you know, it's everything from walking and cycling to supporting uptake of EVs within your council, which actually saves the council money. You're building resilience in your community, reducing heat island effects and deaths, encouraging community food resilience. It just goes on and on and on. 
And Dale's got some great stuff about that in his piece of work, the Local Government Climate Emergency Toolkit. Um, and councils can play a key role in reversing global warming. We can draw down doing things like biochar, planting trees, re-putting vegetation back in the ground, building soil carbon, and we can do some solar reflection. As, you know, if you, just that picture says it all. It's do we want black roofs or do we want white roofs and light-coloured roads? It's really that simple. And just one little slide to finish off. This slide just shows the difference between a current way we think about emissions, the blue is the current way we calculate it, and if we build in what methane actually does in terms of the here and now of warming, you can see that the agriculture, the waste sector, have much more impact than we currently calculate. So thanks very much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thanks, Adrian. Um, it's been great to hear from somebody who's been there from the very start. Um, and I'd like to give an extra thank you to Adrian because he's the person who's brought together and coordinated the session today. And next, we're going to go to Bryony Edwards. We've already heard from her today. She's one of the directors of CASE as well. And she's going to talk a little bit about how we can use the upcoming council elections towards the end of this year in Victoria to drive council's climate emergency agendas and how it can help get councils into climate emergency mode. Thanks, Bryony. Thanks a lot, Sally. I'm just going to share my screen, hopefully successfully. So as Sally said, I'm going to talk about um, using elections, um, which are a very strategic time to leverage a council into emergency mode because all of the candidates are listening to the community like they do at no other time. So just going back, Adrian already shared this map, but, you know, here's the result of the butterfly wings. So, so 2,355 governments around the world recognising the climate emergency because of the butterfly wings of Darabin Council saying we recognise the climate emergency and then the, the groups that say, you know, took that to other councils and said, now why don't you do the same and took that around the world. So... What's your strategy? So if you, you, you want to get your council to mobilise, do you want to run as a candidate to do it? Do you want to set up work with an existing local group to lobby and pressure the candidates at election time? Or do you want to do both? If you want to do both, you probably need to separate yourself from, from a, um, a group that you might that might be working on this so there's not such a, a conflict of interest. But we talk about both, you know, running as a candidate or working with a candidate and being with a community group. So you might, if you're not already with a group, you might want to join one like a global, so many councils have a climate action network. There might be a voices of group, transition street groups, local Facebook community groups, um, or you could have a significant impact with yourself if you just have a few others to work with and, and can bring others on board. Um, and you want to, most groups still don't understand the why and how of emergency mobilisation. Um, this is really, unfortunately, but it's the case. So it's so you can see the CASE website um, and get in touch with us if you need some help on that. That's caseonline.org. So that's getting your group into an emergency frame. So they're thinking big picture. So if you are running as a candidate, um, you, you've got to think about what your objective is. Do you want to get elected? You, maybe you just want to educate the councillors and the community and influence the election outcome. And um, back in 2016, both Adrian and I ran as climate emergency 
candidates in Darabin. We just spruiked the climate emergency. We just spruiked what council should be doing. We neither of us won council, but I think I, I think that us running was key in getting talking to the other candidates and saying, look, look, this could work. Um, you might want to do you might want to do both. If you want to get elected, um, in most councils, you would need to do more than just talk about the climate emergency. If you just want to educate councillors in the community, you can just talk about the climate emergency and what council can do. Now, because we have preferential voting in Australia, this is this sort of changes the way elections happen. Because when you run as a candidate, you speak with other candidates um, about, you know, where am I going to put you in my preferences? You know, I'll put you number two if you uh, can tell me what you understand about the climate emergency and convince me that you properly understand it and that you're going to do something for council. Um, so though that's great leverage. The candidates talk to each other in most cases. It makes a huge difference to sharing ideas. Um, if you run as a candidate, you can also educate the community because you can door knock and elections are one time of the year. You can ignore no junk mail stickers and put anything in the letterbox because the ALP and the LNP made it so. Um, so can other campaign tools, um, you can talk to candidates as a, you can talk to candidates as, as a candidate yourself or as a community group. Um, when you talk to other candidates, link climate emergency action to something the candidate cares about, such as family, nature, lowering rates, um, whatever. Um, a, a really good lever is highlighting the irresponsibility of not priori of council not prioritising climate. And there's lots of work that's come out in the last few years on the liability of council and Sarah Barker from... Minter Ellison Law Firm has done a lot of this work for Australian councils. Um, we've, the, there's a case blog, Financial Risk for Councils, bearing in their head in the drying ground that summarises a lot of this work. Um, so to be, it's great to be sort of full bottle on that before you talk to candidates. Um, you can also explain the positive financial benefits of very strong climate action and Dale Martin will talk more about that with his toolkit. You can also, it's great if you have a local CAN or you can, a local climate action network that can survey candidates on their climate emergency understanding or positions and then publish the results, such as with a, a you know, a traffic light kind of voting system. And these questions, the survey can educate the candidates. What percentage of can canopy cover, you know, what would they argue for? Do they support initiatives to help get homes and businesses off gas? transitioning the fleet to electric, you know, what do they propose for building community resilience? Um, and do they support council undertaking emergency mobilisation? And you also want someone, a group, your group or, or a group in the area should make sure there's a candidate forum, ideally climate focused, and probably a webinar may be live. And it should start with a shock and awe climate talk, such as David Spratt might present and talk about what councils can do to educate the community, have the right questions prepared and make sure a recording goes live and is promoted, well promoted. And I think that's it from me. Great. Thank you so much, Bryony. Um, thanks for illuminating some of those political opportunities and tools available to us. 
Okay, so up next, we're going to have Trent McCarthy. Trent is a councillor at Darabin City Council. And yes, he's the very same councillor who moved that world first climate emergency declaration. He's going to tell us a little bit about some of the hurdles facing councillors in terms of going into climate emergency mode and the role that community members can play in supporting councillors to make that shift. Thank you, Trent. Thanks, Sally, and, and thanks everyone for joining us. Um, and I'd also just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land who I'm on today, which is the Wurundjeri Wurrung people and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, and also recognise, and I think this is important in this conversation, also recognise the significance of First Nations knowledge and caring for country, which is absolutely essential when we talk about what our climate emergency response is, um, to do that in alignment with that commitment to um, to that recognition because people have lived on in this place for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, and they've lived very well. And I think it's worth us bringing that to the centre of our conversation when we talk about the climate emergency. So what I wanted to focus on is actually first to tell you the hard stuff, and then I'm going to tell you the happy stuff. The hard stuff um, falls into a few categories. So I want to share with you a little bit about the limitations that local councillors actually have. And I've experienced this. I've been a local councillor. This is my 16th year. It's my final year. So, and I say that because one of the things that's really important is to understand what councillors actually do is that they commit to a period of time. So in my fourth term um, of four four-year terms, and in a four-year term, a councillor can achieve a few things, hopefully, if they can win the support of the rest of their colleagues. In order to do that, they need to get that commitment or those commitments engaged in the council plan early on. And in order to do that, they need to be able to demonstrate to other councillors and hopefully to the rest of the organisation that those are things that people can get behind as well. So to get anything through a council chamber, um, you need a majority vote. So if you've got nine councillors, which is what I've experienced at Darabin, that means that if there are nine people there, you need to get at least five of them voting for that thing. Now, why that's important is that it may not be the councillor themselves who's driving climate emergency action on their own, who is the one who is most um, well-equipped to influence their colleagues. It may, in fact, be other community members. And this is why the best campaigns that I've seen in that 16 years on council have been the ones where I've been able to work really closely with the climate action groups, like the, the groups that Bryony mentioned before, or advocates who've put pressure on me and also applied pressure on other councillors to help them understand why it's so important to get behind this initiative or that initiative. And that's not just in relation to the climate emergency, it's in relation to anything. So it's really important, first of all, to understand that in, in Victoria and in most um, states around the, around, the, around the country, states and territories, individual councillors have no individual power. All of the power that they have and all the decision-making roles that they have are collective. Councillors don't have their own budgets, except for a couple of jurisdictions around Australia, and with the exception of some Lord Mayors. So most councillors can't say, I'm going to do this thing and spend money on this thing. They actually need to win the support of a majority of their council. But even then, even if you do win the, the support of a majority of your council, you need to make sure that that item or that, commi that commitment you've made through the council chamber, through a vote, is actually implemented. And that's where the hard work begins. It's actually about making sure that you have a persistent and consistent approach to engaging with the organisation. Adrian mentioned before that councillors are elected. They are like the executive or the board of management, and it's actually the chief executive officer and their staff who implement the council's decisions. So when Darabin, when we made our climate emergency declaration back in December 2016, it was the 5th of December 2016, 
we actually didn't know what that meant in, in the reality of our council implementing a climate emergency declaration and seeking to move into a climate emergency mode. We had to go through that process of understanding and unpacking that. Every council that has declared a climate emergency should have gone through that process. That's the idea. You make your declaration and then you delve deep and understand what does this mean for us? And it means a little bit different for different councils. So one of the first things that I would encourage anyone to think about who is thinking about trying to either get their council, which is already declared, to move into emergency mode is to encourage councillors to start having that conversation with their administration. How are we going? What's happening? What has the council done? And not do it in a way that is um, uh, shifting blame or accusing, but rather being curious. Because one of the challenges that we have in this space is that because it hasn't happened anywhere yet, because no local government anywhere in the world, as far as we know, has shifted into that emergency mode, it is very difficult to actually point to um, an example to say, why haven't you done what this council has done? Because we don't have that example, and that's what we're searching for. But what we do have are examples of councils working at speed, at pace, and in a collaborative and collective way to make a huge impact. And I want to share with you an example of that. So in Darabin's climate emergency plan, which was the first climate emergency plan um, that had been developed anywhere, one of the commitments that was made was a commitment to shift the council's operations to 100% renewable energy. Now, Darabin made the commitment to say, if we are going to do this, why wouldn't we also ask every other council to join us on that journey? And why wouldn't we do the work to actually work out how we can do that? As a result, that led to the creation of what's now called VICO, the uh, Victorian Energy Collaboration, which involves over 50 councils pooling their, um, their renewable energy consumption uh, together and effectively shifting and moving together. One of the great things about that was that when we were aware that a council might not be um, moving to join this, this effectively this buyers group of renewable energy, um, we were able to encourage their climate action groups to apply pressure upwards. And that meant that councils, in some cases, had declared a climate emergency or hadn't, but hadn't taken any significant action. So this was the first action that they took, which was to shift to 100% renewables. That's now the largest emissions reduction project of local government anywhere in Australia, in Australian history. And that's an, an example of going into emergency mode in relation to where you get your power from. So my big belief is that if we can understand what are those points of influence and who do we need to talk to, then we can actually help those people make change and make those shifts. One of the great things about local governments and local councillors is that you can find out who they are. It's all there on the website. You can generally bring them up. It's the most accessible level of government. And importantly, they have a responsibility to you as a constituent. That doesn't mean they have to agree with what you've got to say, but they have to give you the time and they have to give, they have to listen to what you've got to say, particularly if you can demonstrate that you actually have um, a connection to others in your community. So my first suggestion is if you're interested in doing this, make contact, make contact with your local councillor and have a conversation with them. Be curious and ask them to be curious about what is possible. If they've declared a climate emergency, if the council has, what have they done? What could they do? And what are they going to pursue? And that conversation can sometimes lead to them ticking, picking that thing up, running with it and having a go. Um, Sally, I'm conscious of, uh, of, of time, so I'll probably go for one more minute if that's okay, which is really just to say the critical thing is to understand that the drivers of policy decisions and big decisions in local government are people just like you and me. They're local residents who became councillors. So they're not 
at the big end of town. They're generally people who have come from your own community and therefore there's already a connection there. And if you are seeing the impacts of the climate emergency in your own community, then talk to your local councillors about that. So a good example is if you're seeing um, the degradation of a local park due to the weather impacts, talk about that as something that matters to you because that will actually connect with them and then ask them what can they do about it in terms of their council's emergency mode. So I'll end it there and looking forward to some questions later on. Great. Thank you so much, Trent. Um, thank you for that insight into the inner workings of councils and how we can support that shift into climate emergency mode. All right. So up next, we have Tiffany Harrison. Tiffany is the coordinator of a climate alliance, and she was the world's first climate emergency officer. She's going to be speaking about how resource constrained councils can engage with the climate emergency movement. Over to you, Tiffany. Thanks, Sally, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, a, a bit like Trent, I would like to focus on some of the, the challenges, um, potentially a little bit more from the perspective of officers working within councils who are working really, really hard um, on climate policy, on enacting climate change, but have a lot of real limitations and, and resource constraints. So I've worked across a number of different councils in my time. Um, I've also really passionate about the climate emergency. So worked um, a bit over a decade ago, 2013, we're looking at what does it mean or what could it mean for local governments to declare a climate emergency and really take that on um, in, in this work as a level of government that can really push that. Uh, so this is very exciting to see so many councils and now other jurisdictions around the world who have declared a climate emergency. But a question that I do get from resource-constrained councils in, in regional areas, I, I guess in particular, is what does that really mean for our councils? So they're already struggling with um, with the workload or having small teams, often one person responsible for anything to do with sustainability. And now that's climate change, so that's a massive remit. Um, so what does a climate emergency declaration mean in reality for the work that they do? What, how can it help them? How can it help their council? Um, you know, when they're working as hard as uh, as possible. So a lot, a lot of councils, yeah, as, as I said, with limited staff resources, they're doing amazing work. Um, but also council officers in particular that, that I speak with are, are really concerned about climate change. It's gone from a space of mitigation that is still working in the mitigation space, but um, regional areas, I live out in Gippsland now and, and Gunaikano country, and... There's uh, been storms, fires. There's a lot of towns without um, that were without power for about five, six days recently with the recent storms, um, and that's really hitting home to council officers who feel really responsible in the work that they do to be able to respond to this, to effectively plan for that, but with basically limited to no budget. Um, so that that is a real problem that we have. The mo the councils which are uh, the council areas and the local areas and communities who are feeling the stress of the emergency most in Australia are the, also the ones that have the limited and the least amount of resources to be able to respond to that. So obviously there, there are certain things um, that councils do. So, you know, I'm part of um, collectives across the state with the Victorian Greenhouse Alliances and we work to do advocacy to be able to highlight that to different levels of government to, to support councils more um, in that space. Uh, also <laughs> aware that state government is also constrained. So I think that that's the real problem now is that we have 
a whole bunch, you know, a whole bunch of councils who are really feeling the strain. We've got a bunch of councils who have declared a climate emergency, but we haven't seen that next level of action either. So either councils are at that stage doing lots of work, really, really struggling with what it means to the massive workload for them in their area and haven't declared, or the ones that have and taking, as Adrian was talking earlier, taking that next step up and actually enact it going into climate emergency mode um, from the, the declaration is one thing, but then fully um, shifting into if we're actually treating it as a proper emergency, what does that mean for our council? So I guess, I guess there's there's no um, clear output except for more community support, very, very vocal community support for the climate for climate action, climate change, which leads through to councillors understanding that message, but also advocacy up to different levels of government to be able to provide that financial support that those councils need to do that work and internally to be able to have you know, those teams supported financially and also with um, their other levels of, of policy support and generally you know, internal work and, and um, knowing that the directors and, and leadership teams really support um, that climate work. I think that's really important, but also communicate community can be asking the questions of teams that are not just sustainability. So looking at emergency management teams, how do they work better together? So starting to look at, councils are starting to look at that holistic integration of work across all the levels of all the teams of, of, of council um, and, and working better in that space. Yeah, I, I guess that that's the the main message I wanted, wanted to come through with is that um, yeah, council council officers are in it for the real, for the real, real fight um but really struggling at the moment and um the more community can support them um and support councillors um getting that message as well i think that's really important you're with climate conversations listening to the recent climate cooling mini summit in melbourne which was a part of the national sustainability living festival Thank you so much, Tiffany. I think that's a really timely reminder that councils are not all on the same playing field and also they're having to deal with climate impacts uh, alongside their climate emergency work. So thanks for that, Tiffany. Okay, so um, I'm now going to introduce Dale Martin. Um, Dale is the author of the Local Government Climate Emergency Toolkit. We've heard that mentioned a few times before. He's a former councillor and he's going to describe some of the key mechanisms for influencing councils and supporting broader climate mobilisation. Thanks, Dale. Thanks very much. Um, I will share my screen. So, uh, yeah, g'day everyone. As um, as uh, it's been alluded to a couple of times now, so I'm um, back in 2020 at the uh, at the end of my four years um, as a city councillor in the city of uh, Meribeck. Um, I authored a toolkit which um, is called the Local Government Climate Emergency Toolkit. Um, it is a free resource for anyone to download. Um, it has 46 actions um, in it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that um, in a moment. Um, the toolkit itself has been downloaded now over 15,000 times um, across 50 countries. Um, and like I said, it's a free resource. There's a PDF version. And then um, due to popular demand, I created a, a Word version as well. So people can copy and paste uh, a little bit easier. I should also say as well, um, so I work in sustainability. I've been working in energy and sustainability for the last 14 years um, as well. So uh, one of the things um, that people sort of ask me quite a lot, um, particularly with the toolkit, um, is, you know, where do I start? Um, and in the context of building momentum, I think it's really um, important to start by actually centering yourself and 
starting somewhere. Um, and I know that that's probably not um, what a lot of people like to hear and that people like a really set list to work their way through from A to Z, but it just doesn't work like that. Um, like was mentioned before, I mean, local governments are so diverse um, from the inner city all the way out to the regional areas um, and then across different states. And I've had many conversations um, with what's a priority over in WA versus what's a priority in Tassie or Vic. Um, you know, you can get quite varied um, sort of local issues and, and importances. So when stepping through the, uh, the toolkit um, and, you know, progressing on your climate compass, there's sort of four key areas to look at, and that is governance, energy, biodiversity, and waste. And so looking at building momentum, um, I, I really encourage people to take a step in any of the directions uh, because you will find that people are passionate about certain areas um, and the toolkit really has specific um, measurable and direct actions in each of these areas. So if you are particularly passionate about something, run with it, talk to your councillors, talk to your community. Um, you can campaign on a single action or you can campaign on a really effective full council climate emergency response plan. Again, um, being strategic. So here are a list of the 46 actions um, that are in the toolkit. Um, really, it's quite a lot. Um, and particularly when I talk with council officers who are thinking about um, putting forward a climate emergency um, response plan, um, it is quite overwhelming. And so that's why I really encourage people to take steps um, in any direction um, and build that momentum internally because once you have internal resources that can actually do additional work, um, that helps really inform the organisation and really focus on that culture, which is really, really key. Again, start at the basics. Um, the toolkit has um, actions from one star, two star to three star. Um, start with one star, start with the areas that you're passionate about, um, and then progressively build from there. If you're a council um, that's lucky enough to have resources, um, to have councillors declare a climate emergency and then initiate a response plan, then you're able to really take more robust steps. Um, and I'd be recommending something like looking at the actions here, looking at what some of the, the councils that are leading in this space are doing um, and actually using them as a benchmark as well. So I wanted to uh, really quickly um, finish by talking about stamina building. Um, I think it's really important that um, when you're working in this space, um, it's a journey. Um, and, as, and as frustrating as it is, um, not everyone understands the predicament that we're in. Um, and so we really need to um, build stamina for the journey um, to bring others on board. The first one being making sure that you're sharing stories of success and looking to your peers, looking to your other councils for the great examples and the brilliant work that's happening. Understanding the motivations of your stakeholders. A number of different councils have um, quite varied councillor um, makeups and, and also as well, the senior executives um, and the CEO that, that work within a council. Um, so it's really important to understand those stakeholders uh, before you really commit to what you're asking for. Um, the third point in there is, is to really support those working inside of a council. So if there are officers that are working, um, if there are councillors that are on board and are really trying to push this, celebrate the successes that they're able to achieve with the resources that they have. Um, the fourth point is to really participate in community engagement. I can't 
tell you the number of times where we had a room full of people asking for us to commit to something, but then we couldn't even get a single response on a budget or a single response on a, on a local plan. So I think it's really important to participate um, in that community engagement. And the final point as well, um, for everyone working in this space, take care of yourself because um, it's incredibly stressful and anxiety inducing. Um, and so it's, it's really important to take care of yourself. So thank you, everyone. Great. Thank you, Dale. And that's a that's a great note to finish on. Um, and thank you for all your work on the toolkit and on helping councils to grapple with their climate emergency responses. Um, and I want to say thank you to all of our presenters today. Um, I think what we've really heard is that, um, you know, councils have been leading in the climate emergency response, but there's still a long way to go. And, and also there are some really clear steps that uh, both councils and community members can take um, to to move along that that journey towards climate emergency leadership. Um, and again, just thank you to all our speakers today. You've all been absolutely instrumental in the founding and the growth of the climate emergency movement, um, especially in local government. So thank you. Perhaps we can start with this question to Trent. Uh, Trent, there's a question for you. How does Darabin maintain a focus on climate emergency action? Uh, that's a great question. Um, the reality is that most councils operate somewhere between um, 80 to 100 services, which means that any of those services can potentially uh, disrupt or disconnect the council from its climate emergency path if you assume that those services are disconnected from climate emergency action. A good way to think about maintaining momentum around climate emergency action in a council is to look at every single council service area as part of the climate emergency response. So to give you an example, um, when it came to looking at what Darabin did with its most vulnerable households, one of the things that was really important was to start uh, educating our aged care teams, our home and, and community care workers, who would be the first people that would be out there checking on residents who were vulnerable to heatwave impacts. And so if they those people have an understanding about the climate emergency and understanding what's happening with um, particularly a succession of hot days, then all of a sudden they become the front line. And so if you can integrate the work of the climate emergency response into different parts of council, those areas can dial up or dial down what they're doing, but they're part of that broader piece. Adrian mentioned before the importance of the communications piece, and I would I would sort of shadow that and echo that, but also say every part of council is critical. I can't say that we've done it perfectly because we have a very big climate team at Darabin, but I feel that every council officer is a climate emergency officer. We are just about to actually go out for public consultation on our second climate emergency plan. And if you want to go and have a look at what happens when a council has been doing this work for about seven years, um, check it out. It's on the Darabin Council website. I'll pop the link in the chat. But it shows you the sorts of things that we're now thinking about. And some of that work is actually around the fact that we've done our big energy um, work. We've been shifting. We've put the first um, aquatic centre to go to 100% um, uh, renewable energy, no gas. Now we're looking at what happens at that neighbourhood level. So we've got to keep questioning what is the next important thing that we do. And I think for councils that are on that journey, and if you're a community member trying to influence your council, ask that question to your councillors. What is that next thing you need to do to actually deliver significant, serious climate emergency action? Great. Thank you, Trent. All right. Our next question is from Adam. Um, Adam says, it seems that advocates have to work to build support with citizens, councillors, and the administrative arm of council, which can be difficult. 
In what, may, in what ways might climate advocates engage with these three groups in tandem and what should they understand about the interactions between these groups? Great question. I might throw this one to Adrian. Yeah, so it's one of the reasons that we've chosen to do climate action through running as candidates in the past is because it gives you that intersection between dealing simultaneously with the future councillors, like we weren't running to win, but they were, you know, we're communicating with them, with all the potential candidates, educating them. We're educating the public uh, by leafleting, um, being at the community forums, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then once we got, once we got the council to declare the climate emergency, we set up a climate emergency advisory group um, within. Uh, a community advisory group for council. And depending on how open and genuine the particular council is, um, you could those things can be really good. You get to work with officers and build those connections. Um, in the case of Darabin, we you know had were able to influence people directly through that process. So um, in general, there's a bit of a wall between officers and the community in a council. So the council's a bit inward looking. And it's quite restrictive around how much uh, officers can engage directly with community unless there's formal processes set up. So that can be a little bit of a difficult thing to do at times. But um, if the community is out there and getting things in local newspapers and that sort of thing, they are, it, that comes back into the council space. So, you know, people are aware of the community views and good councils go out and engage with their community and seek those views. Great. Thanks, Adrian. I'll just check whether um, Trent or Dale would like to add anything to that. I um, I just think um, talk to them is probably a really good place to start. Um, there are a number of council officers that are willing to have discussions with um, people in the community. Um, and, you know, they may be able to help give you a steer on where the council is truly at. Um, I think also there are a number of executives, CEOs of councils um, and councillors that are willing to meet and talk with community groups. I think just talk to them um, in the first instance to really get to know them and understand what their motivations are. I think that's really important. Thanks, Dale. Great. And I've got a question that I might throw to Bryony. Uh, the question is, you suggest looking to peers for success. How can small local groups who don't know much about what to do or what is possible learn from other groups in other council areas? Is there a way that they can connect and learn from each other? Um, that's a good question. There's, uh, I, first, I'd say come, you can always get in touch with Case. And um, there's also, I think that there are a lot of, I'm going to Facebook groups that kind of where, where these groups do come together. Um, and there, that's a good way to connect with others. There's also some case Facebook groups, case campaigners, groups that are, are pretty useful. Um, and, yeah, it is important that the, the landscape is always changing. So that's really interesting, Trent, that your second plan is now, climate emergency plan is now coming out and really interested to look at that. Um, that there, there is, you know, like a, I've just heard in, so Barwon Water, there are four local governments down in Western Victoria around Warrnambool that are now 
about to turn all their sewage into biochar. I don't know, maybe it's not all, but they're, they're biocharring their sewage to deal with that. They're sequestering um, carbon emissions, methane, whatever. They're, 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 they're stopping all that waste that's going to, you know, end up in various forms in the ocean and so on. So it's really uh, innovative stuff happening. We attempted to... Uh, capture all that in a clearinghouse at case, but certainly it needs to be updated. So I don't know if I, I've answered that very well. Yeah, look, I, can I jump in there? The, um, you know, we used to, the climate movement, the sort of more, more radical, edgy part of the climate movement used to have annual gatherings every now and again. They sort of dropped off recently. I think there's a bit of a rumour that um, Breakthrough might be running one later in the year. So that might be a good opportunity for everyone to come together around this sort of, uh, you know, local government, state, national mobilisation and, you know, we can, we'll have a, hopefully we'll have a local government focus there and people in that space can um, meet together and make connections. So feel free to talk to us. Thanks, Adrian. And that, that possibly leads a little bit into the next question, uh, which I'll start off on, but then I'll then hand over to you, Adrian. Um, the question is around what are we hoping is going to come out of the two conferences that we mentioned, so the Climate Emergency Conferences in Melbourne. Um, so as we said, there's one for councils and one for community. Um, the one focused on councils, I mean, it's really what we're getting at today. It's it's helping um, councils to build their capacity for their climate emergency response, how to get into climate emergency mode, and that that's sort of across, across the board in, in all areas of council. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things we've said it probably a few times in different ways today, but, you know, many councils, they've declared a climate emergency. They haven't necessarily known what they're signing themselves up for. And so, you know, now's the, now's the you know, how do we put this into action and, and exactly what we've been talking about, enabling councils to learn from each other and learn from kind of best practice and, and get back to the kind of original principles and why we've all declared a climate emergency in the first place. Um, Adrian, would you like to add a bit about the community conference, which might also um, talk a little bit to how... Technically, I can't say anything about the community conference <laughs> at the moment. So, there oh, we go. Right. What community like conference are we running? Sorry, missed that one. Um, you to say oh, more or just move swiftly on? No, just move on. I think we. Okay. I think the next one we're looking at is the Breakthrough Conference. So that's, that's you know, maybe someone from Breakthrough. But it's it, just in general, like if you were running a conference, it's about there's a lot of... People just don't get, Bryony said it earlier, people just do not get the climate emergency. They don't get the threat. They don't get the mode that we need to go in. And I think part of it is the problem is because we've had this communication piece around these literally suicidal targets of net zero by 2050 dominating, coming from both sides of the spectrum. It's like from the political side of the sort of supposedly progressive parties or the, and, um, or the slight left of the spectrum as well as the major NGOs. And that confuses people because people would wonder why Greenpeace or um, Australian Conservation Foundation or some of the other major organisations would literally be advocating for suicidal targets for a decade or more. But, you know, that's for them to explain. But I think um, something I'd just like to, to get out there is even within the climate emergency councils, the communication piece is one of the weakest. So we've got councils doing great work, like Trent said, biggest renewable energy project at the time, I think, when the VECO thing came up in, in Australia, Fantas you know, from, from a government at that, that particular time. And, um, and 
But if, you know, I did a survey of all the declared councils, 10 have, 10 have climate emergency on their front page, right? So about 8, 8%. 16 councils frame their climate response as a climate emergency response, right? 16, so only 14%. And another 28 have a sort of second framing around climate emergency. And 43 of those declared councils, you can only find a climate emergency reference is if you do a Google site search. So it is literally buried. They've, they've declared, they've left it alone. You can find it in a legacy document, right, or a legacy news item. So there's a lot of work, even potentially with some of the councils that have declared, particularly in the communication space, around being upfront and honest and direct about what we need to do in the emergency. And if people can remember the COVID communication that councils did, entire websites dominated by COVID communication effectively for years, like two years. So that's where we want to get that piece done. And just before we leave this topic, I uh, just wanted to mention somebody in the chat has mentioned that they would love to see some Zoom sessions run by case for local groups. Just, just giving a little, um, little suggestion there. All so, right, Sally. Sally, just if I, can I just come in on just on what yes. Adrian said? I think it's important. We do people... have a few more questions to get to, but that's right. I'll be really yeah. quick. So one of the things that I think is important for people to remember is that the councillors that you might engage with now are not necessarily the same people that were part of doing the declaration. And so one of the challenges with any communication, it's a bit like having a difficult conversation with a friend that you haven't spoken to for a while and you pick up the phone and you need to say, hey, it's great to be in touch. And then you've got to almost start the conversation again. So if you're reaching out to your council and they haven't done much since they've done their declaration, one of the best things you can do, never waste a crisis. Um, pick something that is happening in the community that relates to, to climate impacts and use that as the starting point because it's real, it's present, it's now, and that will make them focus. And then they will say, oh, we don't have to declare an emergency. We've already done one. Let's actually now do some implementation. And it's shifting that conversation rather than starting from that uh, that starting point, which is way back here. They've already moved a few steps. They've already recognised the science. They've recognised the emergency. You want to really support them to go into that next stage. Thanks, Trent. So we've got just a few minutes before we start wrapping up. Um, I wanted to um, address this question from Rosalie. She says, I feel nervous about declaring an emergency. Didn't we learn during COVID that emergency declarations can allow police to take action in ways that breach rights that they're not allowed to do in non-emergency situations? Um, would anybody like to speak to uh, speak to that topic, Adrian or can have a go, um, yeah, go because I think it is a really important conversation around um, the, I guess, civil rights and emergency modes. But I guess what we're looking at is that the, there's an acute emergency and there's a long-term emergency. And what we're talking about is dealing with a long-term emergency, which arguably at the moment is quite acute for a lot of communities. Um, but what it is talking about is the prioritisation. So it's recognising that this is, an, is a long-term emergency, which is affecting all levels of, of uh, humanity. And if we don't do something about it sooner than later. So it's it's stepping up into that mode where it's amplifying and recognising how important and severe this is. So it's not designed to be, you know, you can't drive more than five kilometres from your house, that sort of stuff, because it is a different type of emergency. What we're talking about is all levels of government and all community working together. So ideally, if, you know, if people are having this conversation 
situation and people are concerned about extra government powers, for instance, what what do we need to be doing in terms of that conversation of making sure communities are part of that voice and part of that conversation and emergency response and planning for what does community resilience look like in 10, 20, 30 years under an emergency mode? So making sure that, um, yeah, again, it's not um, trying to restrict your rights and your movement, but it's recognising that in the future, our, our rights and our movements are being restricted because of these impacts that are coming to us. So um, being part of the conversation, making sure that um, yeah, community groups are, are, are working with government to be able to have some autonomy as well. But, um, you know, all levels and all communities working together for this response. I think, I think that's a key difference. Okay, um, I want to get to at least one more question. And there's one in here, I think might be for Bryony. Um, and it's, have you considered local government actions relation to the reduce, remove, repair, the three R's that you talked about earlier today? Um, most councils are looking towards the um, reduction side of it and maybe some towards removing. Um, are there any actions for local government around repair? Yep, yep. And um, so on the, the third R, repair, which is sort of about active calling. The, the most obvious one is white roofs, white roads, and, and California started doing has started doing white roads, I think, in just Los Angeles to call communities locally. Uh, there's a lot of ice we need to replace to reflect sunlight. Um, wouldn't it be great if we could we could do that with white roofs? Um, you know, and we're still Perth is still putting up black roofs because you knew houses have black roofs because they get a higher rating from NABBAs, which is based on 1990s modelling, you know, probably inappropriate to Perth in the, in the first place. Um, but, but that's the, the, the repair one that for me immediately springs to mind. Then there's the, the, the more localised repair of ecological repair and so on, but that's sort of away from what we think of as active cooling. Great. Thank you, Bryony. Um, we're nearly at time, so I'm going to say thank you to all our speakers and thank you to everyone for being here. And I'm also going to throw to Adrian for some closing words. Adrian, would you like to close out for us? Yeah, sure. So just um, thanks very much for coming to the session and I really hope that um, you've got something out of it. The thing is we, we need a pathway of action and we need a pathway of action that's going to get our governments to respond in the way and the level that we need. And I really think councils are that pathway, okay? So if please get on board with the campaign. I'd also like to thank all the speakers. It was a brilliant um, spectrum of the discussion. It was fantastic. And feel free to reach out and get, get in touch. So thanks very much. Yes, Adrian, as you say, it was a brilliant session. Now, I encourage listeners to check out the show notes because all those groups and organisations mentioned will have links in there for each of them. Well, hopefully I can find them all. Now, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company now. I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think about this podcast and you can contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. Good or bad, don't hold back, please let me know. Now I urge you to share this with your friends. Put it on your networks. Let people know what's happening with the climate crisis. Let people listen to this. Let people better understand what's happening with the climate crisis. Now until we talk again, I urge you to take care, stay safe, and please be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now take care and stay safe.